This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear A Visit by Stephen Milhauser, which was published in The New Yorker in August of 1997. Although I had not heard from my friend in nine years, I wasn't surprised, not really, to receive a short letter from him dashed off in pencil, announcing that he had taken a wife and summoning me to visit him in some remote upstate town I had never heard of. The story was chosen by Richard Powers, who's published 11 books of fiction, including The Goldbug Variations and The Echo Maker, which won the National Book Award in 2006. Hi, Richard. Hi, Deborah. Welcome. So when you were trying to choose a story to read today, you said that it was, it was important for you to choose a story that involved humans interacting with non-humans, whether animals, plants, or other forms of life. Why was that something that you were looking for? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about something that I learned a long, long time ago, actually back in uh, Mrs. Lippman's sixth grade literature class, uh, where uh, she told us that there were three sources of drama in any story. There was man against man, man against himself, and man against nature. And I've been increasingly conscious in the last few years as I've been working on a book about humans and trees that that third source of drama has really kind of atrophied and and, and disappeared from a lot of our fiction. We've become incredibly good at talking about people trying and failing to get along with others who have different values, uh, people at odds deeply with themselves and conflicted over what it is that they exactly want. Somehow this notion that we are also at war with or contesting the world with other creatures who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who aren't in any way uh, participating in our private dramas, uh, has been lost. And I've, uh, I've been very interested in writers who are finding ways of reviving that. And the story involves not necessarily man against nature, but, but man grappling with nature in perhaps unnatural terms, if that's a fair way to put it. Do you think that that's typical of what Milhauser tries to address in his work? Let me, let me start first by saying, as you listen to the story, you'll hear a narrator who is somehow at war with nature and deeply troubled by the discovery of a friend who might somehow have found a way of being at home in a world outside the human world. What makes this a very Milhauser-like story isn't necessarily that exploration of the human colliding with the non-human, although I think he does that uh, uh, marvelously in a variety of ways uh, over the course of his long career. But it, it's a story um, that, like so many of his others, manages to find in the familiar that deep subterranean current of strangeness that the rest of us are so good at sweeping under the rug and, and, and not looking at. And uh, in this case, he also does the reverse. He takes an absolutely bizarre situation, which gets revealed t- uh, toward the beginning of the, the story, al- almost gothic in its, in its weirdness, and then rolls it out as, it's a, as if it's a simple matter-of-fact 
realistic story, uh, love story, a third wheel story, all of these kinds of forms that we're so familiar with uh, when they only deal with human beings. It also draws on some some tropes from fairy tales, and fairy tales are a, a very, I was going to say conventional, a, sort of a, an easy way of looking at man and nature and man and unnatural attachments. Do you think that, that yep. that's something he makes use of? I, I think Milhauser is just an absolutely brilliant fabulist, and, and he has this eidetic eye, so he turns these fables into things that, that look almost as if they're being recorded by a, by a film camera. Uh, but what I love about this story is that it's, it's dead simple. It really comes across as a, as a kind of strangely uh, recognizable allegory uh, uh, or, or child's fable, but it's ridiculously generous with possible interpretations. Uh, if you gave it to, to 15 people, you'd come up with 15 really radically different mm-hmm. ways of thinking about what's at stake here. <laughs> Well, I think we should we should now give it to more than 15 people to listen to. So we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Richard Powers reading A Visit by Stephen Milhauser. A Visit Although I had not heard from my friend in nine years, I wasn't surprised, not really, to receive a short letter from him dashed off in pencil, announcing that he had taken a wife, and summoning me to visit him in some remote upstate town I had never heard of. Come see me on the 16th and 17th, was what he had actually written. Be here for lunch. The offhand, peremptory tone was Albert all over. He had scribbled a map with a little black circle marked village and a little white square marked my house. A wavy line connected the two. Under the line were the words, three and a half miles more or less. Over the line were the words, County Road 39. I knew those desolate little upstate villages, consisting of one Baptist church, three bars, and a gas station with a single pump. And I imagined Albert living at an ironic distance, with his books and his manias. What I couldn't imagine was his wife, Albert had never struck me as the marrying kind, though women had always liked him. I had plans for the weekend, but I canceled them and headed north. I still considered Albert my friend, in a way my best friend, even though I hadn't heard from him in nine years. He had once been my best friend, and it was hard to think of him in any other way. Even in the flourishing time of our friendship, in the last two years of college and the year after, when we saw each other daily. He had been a difficult and exacting friend, scornful of convention, subject to sudden flare-ups and silences, earnest but with an edge of mockery, and cursed with an unfailing scent for the faintly fraudulent in a gesture or a phrase or a face. He was handsome in a sharp-featured New England way, his family, as he put it, had lived in Connecticut since the fall of the Roman Empire. But despite the inviting smiles of girls in his classes, he confined himself to brisk affairs with leather-jacketed town girls with whom he had nothing in common. 
After graduating, we roomed together for a year in a little college town full of cafes and bookstores, sharing the rent and drifting from one part-time job to another. As I put off the inevitable suit and tie life that awaited me, while he mocked my conventional fear of becoming conventional, defended business as America's only source of originality, and read his Plato and his modern chess openings and tootled his flute. One day he left, just like that, to start what he called a new life. In the next year, I received postcards from small towns all over America, showing pictures of main streets and quaint village railroad stations. They bore messages such as, Still looking, or Have you seen my razor? I think I left it on the bathtub. Then there was nothing for six months. And then a sudden postcard from Eugene, Oregon, on which he described in minute detail a small, unknown wooden object that he had found in the top drawer of the bureau in his rented bedroom. And then nine years of silence. During that time, I had settled into a job and almost married an old girlfriend. I had bought a house on a pleasant street lined with porches and maples. Thought quite a bit about my old friend, Albert, and wondered whether this was what I had looked forward to, this life I was now leading, in the old days, the days when I still looked forward to things. The town was even worse than I had imagined. Slowly I passed its crumbling brick paper mill with boarded-up windows, its rows of faded and flaking two-family houses with sagging front porches where guys in black T-shirts sat drinking beer, its tattoo parlor and its sluggish stream. County Road 39 wound between fields of Queen Anne's lace and yellow ragweed, with now and then a melancholy house or a patch of sun-scorched corn. Once I passed a rotting barn with a caved-in roof. At 3.2 miles on the odometer, I came to a weathered house near the edge of the road. A bicycle lay in the high grass of the front yard, and an open garage was entirely filled with old furniture. Uncertainly, I turned onto the unpaved drive, parked with the motor running, and walked up to the front door. There was no bell. I knocked on the wooden screen door, which banged loudly against the frame, and a tall, barefoot, and very pale woman with sleepy eyes came to the door, wearing a long, rumpled black skirt and a lumberjack shirt over a T-shirt. When I asked for Albert... She looked at me suspiciously, shook her head quickly twice, and slammed the inner door. As I walked back to the car, I saw her pale face looking out at me, past a pushed-aside pink curtain. It occurred to me that perhaps Albert had married this woman, and that she was insane. It further occurred to me, as I backed out of the drive, that I really ought to turn back now, right now, away from this misguided adventure in the wilderness. After all, I hadn't seen him for nine long years. Things were bound to be different. At 4.1 miles on the odometer, I rounded a bend of rising road and saw a shadowy house set back in a cluster of dusty-looking trees. I turned into the unknown dirt drive, deep-rutted and sprouting weeds, 
and as I stepped on the brake with a sharp sense of desolation and betrayal. For here I was in the godforsaken middle of nauseating nowhere, prowling around like a fool and a criminal. The front door opened, and Albert came out, one hand in his pocket and one hand waving. He looked the same, nearly the same, though browner and leatherier than I remembered, as if he had lived all those years in the sun, his face a little longer and leaner, a handsome man in jeans and a dark shirt. I wondered if he'd show up, he said when he reached the car, and suddenly seemed to study me. You look just the way you ought to, he then said. I let the words settle in me. Depends on what I ought to look like, I answered, glancing at him sharply. But he only laughed. Isn't this a great place, he said, throwing out one arm as he began carrying my traveling bag toward the house. Ten acres and they're practically giving it away. First day after I bought the place, I go walking around and bingo, what do you think I found? Grapes. Billions of grapes. An old fallen-down grape barber. Grapes growing all over the ground. Italy, in New York. Wait till you see the pond. We stepped into the shade of the high trees, a little thicket of pines and maples that grew close to the house. Big bushes climbed halfway up the windows. It struck me that the house was well protected from view, a private place, a shadowy aisle in a sea of fields. And yet, I said, looking around for his wife, I never thought of you as getting married somehow. Not back then, he said. Watch that rail. We had climbed onto the steps of the long, deep-shaded front porch, and I had grasped a wobbly iron handrail that needed to be screwed into the wood. A coil of old garden hose hung over the porch rail. A few hornets buzzed about the ceiling light. On the porch stood a sunken chaise lounge, an old three-speed bicycle, a metal garbage can containing a rusty snow shovel, and a porch swing on which sat an empty flower pot. He opened the wooden screen door and with a little flourish urged me in. Humble, he said, but mine own. He looked at me with a kind of excitement, an excitement I couldn't entirely account for. The house was cool and almost dark. We had entered the living room, where I noticed a rocking chair that leaned too far back and a couch with one pillow. Ancient wallpaper showed faded scenes of some kind repeating themselves all over the room. Albert, who seemed more and more excited, led me up the creaking, worn-edged stairs to my room, a bed with frilly pink spread, a lamp table on which lay a screwdriver with a transparent yellow handle, and quickly back down. You must be starving, he said, as he led me through an open doorway into a dining room that was almost dark. At a big, round table, there were three place settings, which glowed whitely in the gloom. One of the round-back chairs appeared to be occupied. Only as I drew closer did I see that the occupant was a large frog, perhaps two feet high, which sat with its throat resting on the table edge. My wife, Albert said, looking at me fiercely. 
as if he were about to spring at my face. I felt I was being tested in some fiendish way. Pleased to meet you, I said harshly, and sat down across from her. The table lay between us like a lake. I had thought she might be something else, maybe a stuffed toy of some sort. But even in the dark daylight, I could see the large, moist eyes looking here and there. I could see her rapid breathing and smell her marshy odor. I thought Albert must be making fun of me in some fashion, trying to trick me into exposing what he took to be my hideous bourgeois soul. But whatever his game, I wasn't going to give myself away. Help yourself, Albert said, pushing toward me a breadboard with a round loaf and a hunk of cheese on it. A big-bladed knife lay on the table, and I began cutting the bread. And if you'd cut just a little piece of cheese for Alice? I immediately cut a little piece of cheese for Alice. Albert disappeared into the kitchen, and in the room's dusk, I stared across the round table at Alice, before looking away uncomfortably. Albert returned with a wax carton of orange juice and a small brown bottle of beer, both of which he set before me. The choice, he said with a little bow, is yours entirely. He picked up the piece of cheese I had cut for Alice, placed it on her plate, and broke it into smaller pieces. Alice looked at him. It seemed to me that she looked at him, with those moist and heavy-lidded eyes, and flicked up her cheese. Then she placed her throat on the table edge and sat very still. Albert sat down and cut himself a piece of bread. After lunch, I want to show you the place, take you down to the pond and so on. He looked at me, tilting his head in a way I suddenly remembered. And you? It's been a while. Oh, still a roving bachelor, I said, and immediately disliked my fatuous tone. I had a sudden urge to talk seriously to Albert, as we'd done in the old days, watching the night turn slowly gray through our tall, arched windows. But I felt constrained. It had been too long a time. And though he had summoned me after all these years, though he had shown me his wife... It was all askew somehow, as if he hadn't shown me anything, as if he'd kept himself hidden away. I see women, but they're not the right one. You know, I was always sure I'd be the one to get married, not you. It wasn't something I planned, but when the moment comes, you'll know. He looked at Alice with tenderness and suddenly leaned over and touched the side of her head lightly with his fingertips. How did you... I began and stopped. I felt like bursting into screams of wild laughter or of outrage, pure outrage. But I held myself down. I mean, how did you meet, you two, if I may ask? So formal, if you may ask. Down by the pond, if I may answer. I saw her in the reeds one day. I'd never seen her before, but she was always there after that. I'll show you the exact place after lunch. 
His little mocking rebuke irritated me. And I recalled how he had always irritated me and made me retreat more deeply into myself because of some little reproach, some little ironic look. And it seemed strange to me that someone who irritated me and made me retreat into myself was also someone who released me into a freer version of myself, superior to the constricted one that had always felt like my own hand on my throat. But who was Albert, after all, that he should have the power to release me or constrict me? This man I no longer knew, with his run-down house and his ludicrous frog-wife. And I ate for a while in sullen silence, looking only at my food. And when I glanced up, I saw him looking at me kindly, almost affectionately. It's all right, he said quietly, as if he understood, as if he knew how difficult it was for me, this journey, this wife, this life. And I was grateful, as I had always been, for we had been close, he and I, back then. After lunch, he insisted on showing me his land, his domain, as he called it. I had hoped that Alice might stay behind so that I could speak with him alone, but it was clear that he wanted her to come with us. So as we made our way out the back door and into his domain, she followed along, taking hops about two strides in length, always a little behind us or a little before. At the back of the house, a patch of overgrown lawn led to a vegetable garden on both sides of a grassy path. There were vines of green peas and string beans climbing tall sticks, clusters of green peppers, rows of carrots and radishes identified by seed packets on short sticks, fat heads of lettuce and flashes of yellow squash, a rich and well-tended oasis, as if the living center of the house were here, on the outside, hidden in back. At the end of the garden grew a scattering of fruit trees, pear and cherry and plum. An old wire fence with a broken wooden gate separated the garden from the land beyond. We walked along a vague footpath through fields of high grass, passed into thickets of oak and maple, crossed a stream. Alice kept up the pace. Alice in sunlight, Alice in the open air no longer seemed a grotesque pet, a monstrous mistake of nature, a nightmare frog and freakish wife, but rather a companion of sorts, Albert's pal. And yet it was more than that. For when she emerged from high grass or tree shade into full sunlight, I sensed for a moment, with a kind of inner start, Alice as she was, Alice in the sheer brightness and fullness of her being, as if the dark malachite sheen of her skin, the pale shimmer of her throat, the moist warmth of her eyes were as natural and mysterious as the flight of a bird. Then I would tumble back into myself and realize that I was walking with my old friend beside a monstrous lumbering frog who had somehow become his wife and a howl of inward laughter and rage would erupt in me. The pond appeared suddenly 
on the far side of a low rise. Reeds and cattails grew in thick clusters at the marshy edge. We sat down on flat-topped boulders and looked out at the green-brown water, where a few brown ducks floated, out past fields to a line of low hills. There was a desolate beauty about the place, as if we had come to the edge of the world. It was over there I first saw her, Albert said, pointing to a cluster of reeds. Alice sat off to one side, in a clump of grass at the water's edge. She was still as a rock, except for her sides moving in and out as she breathed. I imagined her growing in the depths of the pond, under a mantle of lily pads and mottled scum, down below the rays of green sunlight, far down at the silent bottom of the world. Albert leaned back on both elbows, a pose I remembered well, and stared out at the water. For a long while we sat in a silence that struck me as uncomfortable, though he himself seemed at ease. It wasn't so much that I felt awkward in Alice's presence as that I didn't know what I had come all this way to say. Did I really want to speak at all? Then Albert said, Tell me about your life. And I was grateful to him, for that was exactly what I wanted to talk about, my life. I told him about my almost marriage, my friendships that lacked excitement, my girlfriends who lacked one thing or another, my good job that somehow wasn't exactly what I had been looking for back then, my feeling that things were all right, but not as all right as they might be, that I was not unhappy, but not really happy either, but caught in some intermediate place, looking both ways. It's hard, Albert then said, in a tone of someone who knew what I was talking about. And though I was soothed by his words, which were spoken gently, I was disappointed that he didn't say more, that he didn't show himself to me. And I said, why did you write to me after all this time? Which was only another way of saying, why didn't you write to me in all this time? I waited, he said, until I had something to show you. That was what he said, something to show me. And it seemed to me then that if all he had to show after nine years was his run-down house and his marshy frog wife, then I wasn't so badly off, in my own way. Not really. After that, we continued walking about his domain, with Alice always at our side. He showed me things, and I looked. He showed me the old grape arbor that he had put back up. Unripe green grapes hard as nuts, hung in bunches from the decaying slats. Try one, he said, but it was bitter as a tiny lemon. He laughed at my grimace. We like them this way, he said, plucking a few into his palm, then tossing them into his mouth. He pulled off another handful and held them down to Alice, who devoured them swiftly. Flick, flick, flick. He showed me a woodpecker's nest and a slope of wild tiger lilies and an old tool shed containing a rusty hoe and a rusty rake. Suddenly, from a nearby field, a big bird rose up with a loud beating of wings. Did you see that? cried Albert, seizing my arm. A pheasant, 
protecting her young, over there. In the high grass, six fuzzy little duck-like creatures walked in a line, their heads barely visible. At dinner, Alice sat in her chair with her throat resting on the edge of the table, while Albert walked briskly in and out of the kitchen. I was pleased to see a fat bottle of red wine, which he poured into two juice glasses. The glasses had pictures of Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore on them. Guy gave them to me at a gas station, Albert said. He frowned suddenly, pressed his fingertips against his forehead, looked up with a radiant smile. I've got it. The more it snows, tiddlypom, the more it goes, tiddlypom. He poured a little wine into a cereal bowl and placed it near Alice. Dinner was a heated-up supermarket chicken, fresh squash from his garden, and big bowls of garden salad. Albert was in high spirits, humming snatches of songs, lighting a stub of candle in a green wine bottle, filling our wine glasses and Alice's bowl again and again, urging me to drink up, crunching lustily into his salad. The cheap wine burned my tongue, but I kept drinking, taken by Albert's festive spirit, eager to carry myself into his mood. Even Alice kept finishing the wine he put in her cereal bowl. The candle flame seemed to grow brighter in the darkening air of the room. A line of wax ran down the bottle and stopped. Albert brought in his breadboard, more salad, another loaf of bread. And as the meal continued, I had the sense that Alice, sitting there with her throat resting on the table, flicking up her wine, was looking at Albert with those large eyes of hers, moist and dark in the flamelight, trying to attract his attention. Albert was leaning back in his chair, laughing, throwing his arm about as he talked. But it seemed to me that he was darting glances back at her. Yes, they were exchanging looks, there at the darkening dinner table, looks that struck me as amorous. And as I drank, I was filled with a warm, expansive feeling, which took in the room, the meal, the Winnie the Pooh glasses, the large, moist eyes, the reflection of the candle flame in the black window, the glances of Albert and his wife. For after all, she was the one he had chosen, up here in the wilderness, and who was I to say what was right in such matters? Albert leaped up and returned with a bowl of pears and cherries from his fruit trees and filled my glass again. I was settling back with my warm, expansive feeling, looking forward to the night of talk stretching lazily before me. When Albert announced that it was getting late, he and Alice would be retiring. I had the run of the house. Just be sure to blow out the candle. Nighty-night. Through the roar of wine, I was aware of my plunging disappointment. He pulled back Alice's chair, and she hopped to the floor. Together, they left the dining room and disappeared into the dark living room, where he turned on a lamp so dim that it was like lighting a candle. I heard him creaking up the stairs and thought I heard a dull thumping sound, which must have been Alice 
lumbering her way up beside him. I sat listening to the thumps and creaks of the upper hall, a sudden sharp rush of water in the bathroom sink, a squeak. What was that squeak? A door shutting. In the abrupt silence, which seemed to spread outward from the table in widening ripples, I felt abandoned, there with the wine and the candle and the glimmering dishes. Yet I saw that it was bound to be this way, and no other way, for I had watched their amorous looks. Then I imagined Alice hopping onto the white sheets, and I tried to imagine frog love, its possible pleasures, its oozy raptures. But I turned my mind violently away, for in the imagining I felt something petty and cruel, something in the nature of a violation. I drank down the last of the wine and blew out the candle. From the dark room where I sat, I could see a ghostly corner of refrigerator in the kitchen and a dim-lit reddish couch arm in the living room, like a moonlit dead flower. A car passed on the road. Then I became aware of the crickets, whole fields and meadows of them, the great hum that I had always heard rising from backyards and vacant lots in childhood summers, the long sound of summer's end. And yet it was only the middle of summer. Just last week I had spent a day at the beach. So for a long time I sat at the dark table, in the middle of a decaying house, listening to the sound of summer's end. Then I picked up my empty glass, silently saluted Albert and his wife, and went to bed. But I could not sleep. Maybe it was the wine, or the mashed mattress, or the early hour, but I lay there twisting in my sheets. And as I turned restlessly, the day's adventures darkened in my mind, and I saw only a crazed friend, a ruined house, an ugly and monstrous frog. And I saw myself, weak and absurd, wrenching my mind into grotesque shapes of sympathy and understanding. I woke tense and exhausted in a sun-streaked room. It was nearly nine. I had three separate headaches, one behind my left eye, one in my right temple, and one at the back of my head. I washed and dressed quickly and made my way down the darkening stairs, through a dusk that deepened as I drew toward the bottom. On the faded wallpaper I could make out two scenes repeating themselves into the distance. A faded boy in blue lying against a faded yellow haystack with a horn at his side, and a girl in white drawing water from a faded well. The living room was empty. The whole house appeared to be deserted. On the round table in the twilight of the dining room, the dishes still sat from dinner. All I wanted was a cup of coffee before leaving. In the slightly less gloomy kitchen, I found an old jar of instant coffee and a chipped blue teapot decorated with a little decal picturing an orange brontosaurus. I heard sharp sounds, and through the leaves and branches in the kitchen window, I saw Albert with his back to me, digging in the garden. 
Outside the house it was a bright, sunny day. Beside him, on the dirt, sat Alice. I brought my cup of harsh-tasting stale coffee into the dining room and drank it at the table while I listened to the sounds of Albert's shovel striking the soil. It was peaceful in the darkish room, at the round brown table. A thin slant of sun glittered in the open kitchen. The sun slant mingled with the whistle of a bird, leaves in the window, the brown dusk, the sound of a shovel striking loam, turning it over. It occurred to me that I could simply pack my things now and glide away without the awkwardness of a leave-taking. I finished the dismal coffee and carried the cup into the kitchen, where the inner back door stood slightly open. There I paused, holding the empty cup in my hand. Obeying a sudden impulse, I opened the door a little more and slipped between it and the wooden screen door. Through the buckled screen I could see Albert some ten feet away. His sleeves were rolled up, and his foot was pressing down on the blade of the shovel. He was digging up grassy dirt at the edge of the garden, turning it over, breaking up the soil, tossing away clumps of grass roots. Nearby sat Alice, watching him. From time to time, as he moved along the edge of the garden, he would look over at her. Their looks seemed to catch for a moment before he returned to his garden. Standing in the warm shade of the half-open door, looking through the rippling screen at the garden quivering with sunlight. I sensed a mysterious rhythm trembling between Albert and his wife, a kind of lightness or buoyancy, sunlit harmony. It was as if both of them had shed their skins and were mingling in air, were dissolving in light. And as I felt that airy mingling, that tender dissolution, it came over me that what I lacked in my life was exactly that harmony. It was as if I were composed of some hard substance that could never dissolve in anything, whereas Albert had discovered the secret of air. But my throat was beginning to hurt. The bright light burned my eyes, and setting down my cup on the counter, which sounded like the blow of a hammer, I pushed open the door and went out. Albert turned around in the sun. Sleep well, he said, running the back of his hand slowly across his dripping forehead. Well enough, but you know, I've got to be getting back. A million things to do. You know how it is. Sure, Albert said. He rested both hands on the top of the long shovel handle and placed his chin on his hands. I know how it is. His tone struck me as brilliantly poised between understanding and mockery. He brought my bag down from my room and loaded it in the car. Alice had hopped through the dining room and living room and had come to rest in the deep shade of the front porch. It struck me that she kept carefully out of sight of the road. Albert bent over the driver's window and crossed his arms on the door. If you're ever up this way, he said, drop in. I'll do that, I said. 
Albert stood up, stretched out an elbow, rubbed his shoulder. Take care, he said, and gave a little wave and stepped away. As I backed up the dirt driveway and began edging onto County Road 39, I had the sense that the house was withdrawing into its trees and shadows, fading into its island of shade. Albert had already vanished. From the road I could see only a stand of high trees clustered about a dark house. A few moments later, at the bend of the road, I glanced back again. I must have waited a second too long, because the road was already dipping. The house had sunk out of sight, and in the bright sunshine I saw only a scattering of roadside trees, a cloudless sky, fields of Queen Anne's lace stretching away. That was Richard Powers reading A Visit by Stephen Milhauser. The story first appeared in the August 25th and September 1st, 1997 issue of The New Yorker and was included in Milhauser's collection The Knife Thrower and Other Stories, which was published by Crown in 1998. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So Richard, this is a this story is kind of a love story, but it's one that we experience from the outside, you know, we're in the the shoes of this narrator who encounters it and either does or doesn't understand it. Do you think that that putting us in that position was a, a purposeful move? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think our our discovery is concurrent with the narrator's, our feeling that we've been set up, uh, as the narrator says, uh, in, in some kind of perverse test or to shock our, our bourgeois sensibility, you know, is very much uh, uh, the same as, as the narrator's struggle. What's, what's interesting is this triangulation so even as we're trying to make sense of uh, a, a man who's fallen in love with a two-foot-tall frog, we are also trying to make sense of the narrator who's absolutely bewildered by this rediscovery of his friend who seems perfectly contented and perfectly fulfilled in, in what to the narrator seems like a monstrous situation. Do you wonder why he never asks <laughs> you know, what's going on or never, you know, never outwardly expresses his surprise? It's handled very artfully. I mean, to, you know, as as Milhauser tries to to get away with the the normal and the, the fabulous uh, in the same you know in the same breath. Uh, once the narrator says, "I'm being tested and I'm not going to give myself away," then uh, he has to uh, you know de facto play along 
with the impossible scenario until it does start to normalize. And, you know, there's this marvelous moment um, when, when they, uh, they head out from their, their lunch uh, where the narrator's still kind of vowing to himself, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just going to roll with this and whatever he is trying to elicit from me, I'm not going to give him, you know, the satisfaction mm-hmm. revealing. And then, they're, and then they're outside and, in the, you know, walking to the pond and the narrator's saying, in sunlight, you know, for a moment, he says, I can see Alice as she was. Mm-hmm. Alice in the sheer brightness and fullness of her being. And, you know, he starts rising to this challenge of taking the non-human seriously, taking the non-human as having an, an agency, as having a beauty, uh, as having a, a behavior that's complex and rich and, and beautiful. Uh, he backs away from it in a, in a kind of disgust. And, and that happens, you know, once again uh, later on in the, in the, when, the, when they're having their dinner. So, so what's brilliant is as we are struggling to take this fairy tale and, and, and make it mean something, we're also seeing the narrator horrified by the possibility of this trans-species communication, thwarted by the fact that he can't connect with his own friend and seeing his friend connected in a kind of sublime and mysterious way with something that has at last given him peace in his life. You know, it's interesting. Why, why do you think he goes, continues to see Albert as his best friend when <laughs> really all of his descriptions of Albert are of someone who's just unbearably pretentious and, and mocking? <laughs> um, and yet he sees him as the person who can either constrain or release him. What, what, what's happening in that friendship? You know, I, w- I was thinking there's something really interesting about the prose. There are these long trailing sentences with these strings of, of free modifiers. And as, as I was practicing story and, and, and reading it for the, for the show, I was thinking there's, an, there's a kind of Proustian cadence here. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's Milhauser doing an imitation of a nostalgic, uh, reflective uh, first-person narrator uh, who's, who's obsessed with the time back then, with his friendship mm-hmm. with this man who disappeared on him. And, and I think that, that Proustian cadence is, is setting up this theme of re-examined memory and, 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 and the question of how reliable it might be. And in fact, over the course of the story, he actually strips away this kind of false halo that he set around his friend you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and their experience in the past. And I, I think this turns back onto my somewhat perverse interpretation of this story, uh, literalizing nature as nature, here we have a human being who thinks that somehow his dissatisfaction with his present can be unlocked by a deeper connection with other people in the past mm-hmm. and who has to see by virtue of, the, of, of, of watching a person who has turned his back on the real world and who has engaged instead with the actual world, the possibility that even his imagined connection with his friend was a fabrication that he never had the kind of grace and ethereal airiness, the secret of air, as he says, that mm-hmm. Albert and Alice have discovered at the end of the story. Do you think we're supposed to take this seriously as a love story? Do you think we're supposed to imagine that there's, that there's marital love between Alice and Albert? Absolutely. I, mean, I, don't, I don't see how you can read it any other way. And in fact, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the narrator is forced up to and over that precipice himself. Yeah. You 
talked about uh, Milhauser as a fabulist and, and as the, st- the story is a kind of allegory and you can read it in, in so many ways. Do you think that it is a fairy tale in which this frog is something else and not just a frog? Oh, sure. I mean, th- that's what makes this a marvelous work of art, just that, that kind of overdetermined, you know, polysemous quality to the, to the story. But I think there is a kind of beauty in insisting that this is the story of a person who has to so completely expand his sense of of human hunger and where it might find satisfaction and there's you know th- there's a there's a an intensity a sort of painful quality to to the descriptions of of the rural landscape the the vegetation the plants the trees the the house that's almost succumbing to the vegetation that's growing up around it. Uh, This is the narrator (laughs) saying, what is the real world? Where is the actual world? What is our relationship to it? Why can't we live here? Why do we have to rationalize and and control and simplify the world to the point where there is no mystery, there is no numinous, airy, light quality uh, that 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 only something outside of ourselves can bring to us. You know, I find the description of the house really interesting. I mean, it, there, there's nothing in it that isn't broken. The railings are coming out of the <laughs> walls. The yep. the tools are rusty. The you know everything is creaking and and falling apart. And at the very end, it's it seems to have been sort of subsumed into nature. Why is the house falling apart in that way? Why does the house because need to be ramshackle? Because it is the great dream of the real world, which is to say the fake social world, to rationalize and control everything, to have everything uh, new and clean and understandable and manageable. And so to leave that place and to go into one of these godforsaken upstate villages is to, is to, is to go into a place that's that's tenuous and and provisional and, and changing and being you know being attacked by uh, chaotic processes disorderly life even you know even as you sit in the at the dining room table you know it's is to be deeply disturbed and to have to give up your sense that uh, that that we're calling all the shots at the same time it's a it's a kind of child's landscape you know we have those Winnie the Pooh glasses, and, and we <laughs> right. have a, a dinosaur decal on the teapot, and and you've got this wallpaper, which he doesn't really make out at first, and then it becomes wallpaper of, of little boy blue and, <laughs> and right, nursery and, rhymes. Uh, and, yeah, Jill at the well, I guess. So yeah. why is this why is this house sort of decorated in, in childishness? The place is definitely down on its heels, and I guess true love can make you a bit negligent about maintaining your environment. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's also uh, Albert at peace. You know, mm-hmm. Albert releasing that desire, that, that human need to, to be an adult, to, to, to manage the world. And, and, and isn't, you know, it's, it's the place where, you know, there, there's a moment where they go, they go outside into the, into the garden and... And, and the narrator says, maybe the center of the house is out here. Mm-hmm. It's outside. And these rows out of, of seeds and 
That's maybe, a, yeah, yeah, maybe that fruit. domesticated place, that, that, that cave that we make ourselves, to, you know, to, to protect ourselves from all these chaotic processes is, is just a kind of irrelevance or, a, you know, superfluity. The, that, that, that the true life is out here in the, in the garden, in the wild yard, under these trees, by the pond. It's very disturbing to the narrator. And yet and, the, the, and even the outside is, is full of sour grapes. We like them that way, says Albert, right? <laughs> as, he feeds, as he feeds Alice. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the grapes as this chaotic and abandoned uh, horticultural pro- uh, project that might have been profitable for somebody, you know, some previous owner in some archaic bygone time mm-hmm. and has now just fallen down on its heels and, you know, they're selling it for a song. And here, here's Albert saying, ah, this is how we like it. <laughs> as he and his wife exchange amorous glances. (laughs) I want to um, quote something from an interview that Milhauser gave about this story. He said a a number of interesting things. He says, I was very much aware of violating my own usual procedure while writing a visit. There are essentially two ways of presenting the fantastic in a story. You can begin in the everyday familiar world and move gradually in the direction of the unfamiliar so that the reader can barely detect where the line is crossed, or you can introduce the fantastic suddenly and eruptively. By temperament and conviction, I much prefer the first method, the slow elaboration of a quotidian world that veers gradually toward the unquotidian, the improbable, the impossible. In a visit, however, the logic of the story required a different approach. In fact, I resisted it for a long time, since I dislike the crude melodrama of a sudden impossible eruption. But it began to fascinate me almost as a kind of challenge. The problem, as I saw it, was to outrage the reader's trust, and then seduce the reader into believing what can't be believed. All this is quite apart from other considerations, such as the fairy tale theme of the frog, who in this case turns into a beautiful creature without changing. Hmm. Ah, it's so so beautifully put. Yeah, and you know, in a way, he solves that technical challenge and ends up having his cake and eating it at the same time by that method that we were talking about earlier, where there's a sudden eruption of the fabulous into the narrator's consciousness and the reader's consciousness at the same moment. But it becomes a challenge for the narrator to resist it. He can't understand. He simply can't make his consciousness absorb this. So he assumes it has to be a trick. It has to be a setup, which means he's going to resist it. And so the the sudden eruption, in terms of the, the, the material reveal gets replaced by the gradual assimilation of this impossibility by the narrator and his and his slow change of consciousness in trying to perhaps take it at face value. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, we, we do have that fairy tale element, and you do have the fact that Alice is called Alice and that, that she's living in what's described as, you know, a, a garden on the edge of the world, or she and the, the narrator imagines her growing up at the bottom of the world in the in that pond, right. and right. and we are in a kind of wonderland where animals are are communicating. <laughs> um, true, that's true, and and you know the the sheer size of Alice is you know sends us into a into another domain. But it was interesting because I wanted to see just how how big a stretch all these things were, you know, to to keep my, my perverse interpretation that the frog is a frog mm-hmm. and, and nothing else. Um, there are African frogs that are almost <laughs> as big as this creature. There really are. Yeah. And, you know, th- this, this notion 
of animal intelligence and even plant intelligence, which is so disturbing to us and such a violation of our sense of exclusive, you know, of specialness and, and centrality, is becoming more and more uh, ratified and, and corroborated by, by various kinds of research. And you know, th th this notion that you can look into the eyes of an amphibian and see something, you know, it, we, we resist it. It horrifies us. It, it's, it's a violation of what we, what we think we are. But it can be done. Milhauser once said, if I hear a piece of writing described as a moral fable, my instinct is to head for the hills. I'll never admit to having written one myself. Do you think he wrote one here? It, moral fable in the sense of, of the reader supposed to, uh, uh, to come out the other end having a, a very recognizable precept that, that they are then to follow? No, I, I, I can't imagine that 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 would be an especially satisfying way of, of thinking about the story. <laughs> but if it, if it does, you know, if it does create this troubling question of who gets legitimacy, who gets standing, who gets, you know, personhood, um, you know, and if it does create that kind of ethical uh, uneasiness in us and in our, in our little impregnable fortress humanity, then... It's got to be useful. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Richard. My pleasure. Stephen Milhauser is the author of 13 books of fiction, including the novel Martin Dressler, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1997, Dangerous Laughter, We Others, and Voices in the Night, which was published in 2015. Richard Powers was named a MacArthur Fellow in 1989. His most recent book, Orfeo, was published in 2014. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. If you've been listening to the Fiction Podcast on your phone, you might want to read The New Yorker magazine that way too. You can do that with the New Yorker Today app, Download it from iTunes, or you can find it at newyorker.com slash today. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of newyorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.